Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. How are you today? I'm wonderful, love. How are you? I'm pretty good. I've been, I mean, we'll get into it with the highs and lows. I've been freaking exhausted. I cannot sleep enough. But anyway, how's your week been? Well, besides getting attacked by mosquitoes, Same. I can't what is the deal? Cope. Living up north, and not north-north, but north of Melbourne, it has been out of control. It has been humid, raining, hot, sticky, everything I don't desire, and I have been bitten to death and I was having this conversation at F45 with my trainer and I said, it's like my blood has so much red wine in it that they just, like, suck it out. And he made a joke of, like, when you smack a mosquito, like a cab salve, a little bit of cab salve comes out of the mosquito. That's your detox. You're like, I'm barely drinking it because the mosquitoes (laughs) are getting it. It's like, yeah, you keep telling yourself that joke. Yeah, but I don't know if it's a certain blood type. Because there's like a... Oh, there's these things about like if you eat bananas or yeah. if you... Know, anyway, whether it's bananas, blood type, whatever it is, I'm one of the ones they like. Yeah, me too. What's... I like to be liked but not by mosquitoes, <laughs> that's for sure. What are your highs of the week? Well, we'll start with my low because it happened before the high. My low was my absolutely fabulous hangover that I got from going out and celebrating a girlfriend's birthday. We had so much fun. But the next day, my husband had like a golf day with all his mates and soccer team. And he left really early. So I was Mm, looking... You were just left to fester in it. I was looking after three children. I say that like they're not my own. (laughs) But and my own hangover. And it was really, really brutal. But it was well worth it and my high is it'll already have happened when everyone listens to this but my little tiny baby on Sunday which it would be yesterday or any day because you guys can listen to this whenever <laughs> the fuck you like she's turned two so that is my biggest high because yeah it's been such a massive two years and I'm just so happy for her. We hope that the weather's good to take her to Corumban Sanctuary so she can have a fun time seeing Aww. the animals. So yeah, what about you? It's so crazy because to me it's like baby Yumi, but yeah. it's like she's not. She's a full-blown toddler and toilet trained. Crazy. It's sick. You like flexing that one, don't yeah, you? Yeah, real flexy that one. <laughs> what about you? High of my week is the weekend just been, we went to Yamba for a family holiday and nice. that was so much freaking fun. We had the best weather, just had the best time and another family came down and it was one of those ones where like, you know how hanging out with other families can be hit or miss in terms of the kids, but they just played so well together and I don't know if it was because they were on neutral ground. So like there was hardly any talk to snatch they just had to like make up imaginative games we weren't at someone's house so it was none of that like that's mine that's mine they were just so good and we were just like see ya have fun playing together both three so could have been a disaster and then low of the week is hang on how was the ping pong show (laughs) 
there was a ping pong table there and my husband put up something about a ping pong show <laughs> and everyone assumed that it was me. Well, you were in the photo, girlfriend. <laughs> ping pong. And the low of the week is probably the rain because Nick and I are trying to build a freaking house that has been going on for like three and a half years. It's finally started and then it decides to rain for all of 2021 and I, like, I just don't even know when the fuck we're going to get in there. And with the rain comes the mozzies, as you say, and, yeah, Yamba was full of them and I am bitten from head to toe. Oh, I know. I feel you. But in this episode there are no mosquitoes. <laughs> None at all. Wow, how's the segue? I love it. I loved this chat. I think we chatted about some extremely big topics Deep. and I don't know how we managed to somewhat cover them in such a short amount of time, but we chat to Yara from Life After Birth Psychology and she is a psychologist and we chatted about mum guilt, identity after having a bub and... I think we chatted a little bit about, yeah, just our mental health, like post, pre, before, after, during. We can't remember, so just tell us, let us know and we hope you enjoy. Just a little note before we get started to apologise for the sound in this episode. We had multiple technical difficulties throughout, but we know this conversation with Yara is worth a listen, so we hope you forgive us and enjoy. And if you don't, good on you. Hello, Yara. Thank you so much for joining us today. You are from Life After Birth Psychology, and gosh, what a important never-ending topic that is. But before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes, I can, of course. So I'm from Life After Birth Psychology. And before I did that, I was kind of working more generally in psychology and also doing music. So I sing in a band and used to do that much more sort of prolifically in the past. And then I had my first child in 2008 uh, 2016 rather and that just really flipped my whole world upside down and that was challenging for a variety of reasons I had was really fortunate to have a really lovely experience with birth and all that sort of thing but really struggled with breastfeeding with him and my relationship really struggled and my whole sense of identity I want to say shift but actually it's more like just went out the window so disappeared and part of that was to do with I guess my social group changed in that time and that was all really, you know, hard and challenging for me. So I had to work really hard during that period to sort of figure out where I sat now and who I was as a woman and I guess how I wanted to be as a mother and also where I sat and how I was going to work with my relationship and the struggles that we were experiencing at that time. And through that process, I started to look at what was out there in terms of services and also, I guess, education and things to prepare women for what was going to happen once they had a baby and I pretty much came up with zero. Not that it wasn't around but that it was just really hard to find Um, and in particular I was really interested in what was available for preparing relationships for the challenges that would come with having a baby and I just couldn't find anything like that in Australia. I did find something that was run by the Gottmans overseas and two years later they brought some training to Australia and I signed up for that and did that And I think that was all that thinking and starting to consume, you know, content about motherhood and about matrescence, which is, I guess, you know, similar to adolescence in terms of the development and the rebirth of the person, of the woman through the motherhood journey. Through all of that, I just went, 
there's such a lack of services focused specifically in this space that this is something that I want to provide to other women so that maybe I can help them avoid going through some of what I went through also that I can just still be a support and help them navigate their way through that. And so that's kind of where life after birth happens. This idea of life after death kept coming into my head, like in terms of we know that saying. And I was like, yeah, but what about life after birth? You know, totally. because it's like you start again. It's a rebirth, you know. And I guess life after birth, that name is so similar to what we were trying to get across with beyond the bump is yeah, that yeah. there often is a lot of focus on pregnancy and on birth and they are extremely mm. important times of our lives with huge transitions. But we were like, what about that massive transition after birth? And so, yeah, yeah you're our kind of person because we girl. agree. <laughs> we, it's just, yeah. a, a, you know, an area where all of a sudden you go home with a baby and two new mm. people have been born in that process. And there's so oh, much put on the baby. Huge. But what about the mum? Who's looking after the mum? So That's right. Thank Who's, you. What yeah, a woman no, you are. No, and I think, you know, since sort of starting this and talking to people about it, personally, I was quite connected you know, during my first pregnancy and then subsequent pregnancies with the midwife kind of circle here in Perth and birth workers and things like that. And I just was always talking about them. I remember when I was pregnant with my second, I'd be having like my doula pop in, you know, after she'd been born. And this is what I'd be talking to her about because <laughs> my head was just buzzing with like, I've just got so much work to do here. You know, like there's so much to be done. And I was really fortunate to have a doula, for example, at both of those births. So I had such fantastic oh, support. Hey, doula. You know, oh my God. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so I was really fortunate to have that and to have all these women around me who really, you know, got this thing that I was talking about and were just like, yes, there is so much need. Yes, yes, yes. So that was really wonderful. So that was kind of happening in the background. And I continued to work as a psychologist more generally with sort of all sorts of presentations and all kinds of people. And then it was when I went back to work in 2020 of all times that I actually went, okay, I'm going to like fully launch into this completely on my own and become very niche in terms of who I actually see and that sort of stuff. And it's just been overwhelming, the response to it, which is really surprising. I thought that it might take a bit longer to sort of generate, you know, conversation around that and to, you know, get people coming through. And, and it's just that thing. There's such a lack of focused services for women in this time. So they're screaming for it. And as soon as you like get the opportunity or they get the opportunity to have a voice, then they're all for, you know, being heard. Yara, what are the most common themes that you work with new mamas on? Probably the biggest one that I would see is to do with identity change that happens with motherhood. And the way that that kind of shows up is that sometimes women come in and they say, I just feel so lost. I just don't know who I am. I don't know what I like doing anymore. And that they just kind of feel very numb in that space, which is really heartbreaking, you know, for women to have that experience. And there are so many reasons and layers and stuff like that. I mean, one of the things is that motherhood, you know, by its nature is very all-consuming. But I think that on top of that, there's also like the social expectation and therefore, you know, the expectations that we have of ourselves that motherhood should be all-consuming, you know, that we should be giving everything to our family and we should be giving everything to our children. And, of course, that leaves women feeling really depleted emotionally. And, you know, it's such a cliche thing about talking about you can't feel from an empty cup, but it's just so true. You know, if we don't give back to ourselves, then we do end up just feeling very empty and very numb and feeling like, the space that we've got available to us before we lose it 
become smaller and smaller, you know. And so identity is definitely one of those things. And then the other thing is also guilt. It's just such a big thing. And guilt and shame are sort of two things that can be together but are very different things. And so guilt is really, you know, when something happens and you make a judgment that you feel bad about the thing that you did, whereas shame is really that you feel bad about yourself as a person and that you, I guess, as a result of whatever's happened, you judge it as being indicative of something characteristic of you. And are these signs of depression or are these signs of adapting to a new role in your life? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm starting a group in late April and there's an exercise there where we look at a variety of what you might call symptoms or changes that happen for women and the exercise is like is this a mental health issue or is this just normal part of motherhood and I think that it can be both so it depends how you know to the extent of which someone is experiencing that the other thing is that this issue of shame and of guilt is often something that people bring with them into motherhood so there are people who experience shame and have, you know, maybe lower self-worth and self-esteem and, and things like that, and they've struggled with that for a large portion of their life and they bring it with them into motherhood and it might flare up and become more apparent in motherhood or might be just showing up more constantly because they are in a situation where everything's new and there's lots of opportunities to do things not quite perfectly, you know, and so the opportunity for you to experience guilt and for that to become more like shame is just it's around more often. Whereas before we have children, we're probably in an environment where we've got a good ability to do things how we want them done or how we think they're expected to be done. You know, you enter motherhood and it's like everything's new. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's, it's a massive learning curve. Which sometimes you think almost that that can be a blessing because you go in there not knowing. But sometimes it does be almost detrimental because it's something that is so important in your life like this is the biggest Mm. role that you'll ever ever have and yet you have no effing idea how to do it (laughs) yeah and you're supposed to just get it yeah it's pretty scary it's really scary and it's not even the first child Yeah, no, and you're so right about that. And I remember, you know, after we had our first child and my husband was trying to convince me to have another one and he used to say, well, you've already got one. So it's just like you just add one on. (laughs) And at that point I just was like, this was quite early on and I used to say, like, dude, it's an exponential increase in in everything. Everything. It is not just adding another one. It's a whole new person. You become a whole new person again. There is such a learning curve all over again. So I think to some degree there are certain things, you know, in a second child or a third or whatever where you can go, yep, I know how to do these things. But there's a new person that you have to adjust to in a relationship to form while still maintaining all the other ones. So for me I think about it in terms of, like, emotional availability that you need to have for subsequent children but also for the ones you have and for yourself and for your partner and for you know and so that becomes really challenging and I think you know what you were saying there about not being prepared one of the things that I find challenging in my work is about finding the sweet spot of where you tell people enough so that they're prepared but that you're not freaking people out as well because that can be a challenging thing. You know, you don't want to rain on someone's parade, especially when you're pregnant, because when you are pregnant, that tends to be when everyone's got their advice for you. So I think that the fine line that I think exists there is having every person that you meet give you their advice on birth or what to do or what not to do or parenting styles or whatever 
is not the right way to do it because I think women end up overwhelmed and it's also not advice that they have explicitly requested. So I think that that is not the great way to do it. But I think if you have programs or workshops and things like that, that you can get women to see the value of in preparing them and then you present that in a way that is empowering. So it's not like these are all of the horrible things that are going to happen and how stressful it's going to be, but instead these are some of the things that can be challenging for women when they become mothers and these are the skills that you can use to manage that. Oh, my gosh. I'm literally like nodding along to absolutely everything you say. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, I feel like a bobblehead doll. From the very beginning, what you said about identity, I think it's so interwoven with guilt as well because as you're saying, there's this expectation that parenthood is all-consuming and it is and, you know, the good mum is the selfless mum. But then if all you do is be a mum, then society says you're just a stay-at-home mum. And then so no matter what you do, whether that is things outside the home or quote unquote just a stay-at-home mum, which I think is the most difficult role in the whole entire world and, oh, my gosh, my days going to work are so much easier than my days with my kids. But (laughs) it's never right. And then I think that's what builds into the guilt and the shame and this, oh, it's just, yes, so interwoven. And then with the expectations, it's like there's nothing more annoying than someone saying to you, just you wait, or the unsolicited advice. But then if you haven't been told about something, you're just left out in this open field going, why the fuck did no one tell me about this? So I think (laughs) it is about having those resources there and having them, you know, beaming in shining lights so that women know you're not alone but we will Mm. give you this information when you look for it rather than everyone just coming at you, as you say, when you're pregnant Mm. with a megaphone going, just you wait until they're doing this, this and this, and you are going, can I just get through the fucking pregnancy first? But then some of it is helpful because all of a sudden you are going home with a baby (laughs) and you're like, wait, no one told me how to swaddle a baby. Like what? Yeah, and I think, you know, the thing that stuck out when you said that just then to me was about that, when people say things like just you wait, it feels very undermining of your current experience. And I think that that's why that doesn't work and people become defensive, you know, so they might get good advice, but they're not taking it in because they're now defensive because it's been presented in a certain type of way. And so I think letting women know that they are seen and heard in their current experience, whatever that is, you know, you can even do things like ask people if they want to know something. You know, one of the things I, my husband and I talk about in terms of relationship difficulty, because that's another thing that comes up a lot for women, is, you know, I, he has a tendency to want to problem solve for me. And I say to him, look, when you get that feeling, ask me if it's okay. And so that's our thing now. It's like, you know, I've got a solution that's coming up for me. Do you want me to tell you about that? And sometimes, actually most of the time, I'm like, no. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. I just want you to hear what I have to say and I just want you to tell me, you know, and just be on my side. I just want you to be my cheerleader with this, you know. And then other times I'm like, okay, what's your idea? Like I do want to solve this. And so I think it's the same. Like we can still tell women, hey, you know, I have some input there or I have some knowledge there. Would you like to hear that? You know, in however that feels right to be able to communicate that. But I think it's about letting women feel valued about every step of the way for them so that they're not having to go, oh, so what I'm dealing with right now and the hardship I experience now isn't important because something more crap is going to happen later down the track. And I think that's not fair and it doesn't feel nice. And what kind of preparation do you think women or partners can do before having a baby without kind of jumping Mm. to that next step before they're there and, you know, like really giving their pregnancy that time it needs Mm. and that attention it needs but still preparing? Yeah, I think that 
people are becoming more aware because of things like social media and stuff where mothers and fathers as well are talking very openly and in a very raw manner about what they experience in becoming parents. But I think that people in general are becoming more aware of the need to prepare for that stage. But I still do find it difficult to convince women or couples who are, you know, in their pregnancy, even towards the late stages of that, to invest time and money into preparing their relationship because it's one of those things where they don't know what they don't know yet. I think there are definitely things that exist. So, for example, like lots of doulas are doing things like postnatal planning now, which I think is just brilliant. So preparing people, not necessarily even the psychological aspects, but even in terms of like, you know, letting women know that they need to do things like, or that could be helpful if they have like a meal train or if they prepare meals and have that stuff ready, having conversations about, what you're going to do when sleep deprivation kicks in, who's going to do the feeding, you know, all of those sorts of things. So those logistical things. And then in terms of preparing the relationship, the one that I actually run, although I don't have one running at the moment, is called Bringing Baby Home. And that's um, run by, well, it was developed by the Gottmans, John and Julie Gottman in the US, who are really well-known, renowned sort of relationship researchers and therapists. And basically that program is brilliant because what differs from that is that it's actually just really about the couple. The program is the couple's workshop that runs for 12 hours. And for me, I split that up over six weeks. And it's basically telling you about what you need to do in a relationship anyway to form connection and to stay connected. Um, The importance of things like the emotional bank account and why when that is empty, there is more conflict in a relationship. It teaches people about things like turning away and turning toward, turning against, which is to do with how we bid for attention from our partners. So it teaches you all of these sorts of skills that you can, A, implement straight away because many people don't know these things, and B, that you can fall back on when you start to experience challenges and you can go, oh, the woman is feeling touched out or whatever and doesn't want to you know, have sex or doesn't want to be physically close to their partner or whatever, but that feels like turning away to their partner who's bidding for their attention. So how do we meet that need in another way, for example, you know, when the woman isn't feeling able to do that? So it's, it's providing that kind of education and it's like mind-blowing. When I did this myself and then I went and did the educator training for it, I felt so shortchanged <laughs> that I hadn't had this opportunity to learn this before I became a parent. Like I was mad <laughs> because I was like, this is life-changing. This would have been life-changing for my relationship anyway. But then to have been able to have that to support the changes that happened in our relationship from day dot would have just been really, really powerful. So that really annoyed me. Maybe I will have a baby in my 40s. After all this, (laughs) I think I might. Now that you're going to have a doula and you've done your relationship course. I'm rethinking that vasectomy. (laughs) So that's, you know, a really helpful thing. And, you know, one of the things that I'm so encouraged in seeing as well is that I have a lot of women who come to me in their pregnancy, often towards the end of it, who are getting to the point where they're like, the time is approaching that I'm about to become a mother and I'm completely wigging out about it. And I just think it's so awesome that women come, like I just wouldn't have thought of doing that personally and I'm a psychologist. (laughs) And women are coming to me and going, I need to work through my thoughts about becoming a mother, like what expectations I have. And, you know, depending on how far they are in their pregnancy, we might talk about family of origin. Like I am careful about not doing that too close towards the end of the pregnancy because that can really open up, you know, some really big stuff. And typically when people go on and have their baby, there's a space there where they're in their bubble and, you know, they're having their space to adjust and all that sort of thing. So I don't want to open up big stuff right before they're going to be left on their own. But, you know, and I'm just so encouraged 
that more and more women are actually starting to have these thoughts and starting to think, how's this going to change my family? How's this going to change my relationship and myself? And I'm thinking about how do I prepare for that? We do talk about expectations all the time and how they Mm. can just be so, so detrimental. And I mean, Jade's been very open that when she had her third daughter, she just had these expectations Mm. of, oh, it's going to throw another kid on the pile type situation. Mm. How can we go into either our first birth or consecutive births without these expectations because I think as we said before social media can be great because you can see the raw truths of parenthood but you also see all these incredibly glamorous women with their well-behaved sleeping babies with no bodily fluid anywhere in sight like how can we have realistic expectations or no expectations at all oh that's generally i know that's yeah, a very yeah, personal a question i think that you know for me one of the massive areas that i work in with the women that i see is around this issue of reparenting and that's relevant to your question because depending on the kind of experiences we've had when we were raised it plays a role in, I guess, forming our belief systems and our value systems and our expectations about what we think parenting should look like. So there's that aspect that comes into our thought process around what we should be doing as a mother and what, what is the standard, you know, like what's good. Then there's also the social pressure, like you said, you know, the stuff on social media, the other women that we know who are mothers that we compare ourselves to, there's all of that stuff. And I think what I would like to be able to help all people, but in particular women and mothers who I work with, be able to do is to be able to stand alone in the wilderness. And I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown who is an amazing researcher and I just love her work so much. And I re-listened to some of her books actually over the last month. And, you know, one of the things that she talks about is being able to stand alone in the wilderness. And what that means is that we forge our own path. It does. It sounds terrifying. But the thing is, is that the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And that's the thing with everything in life. You know, the more practice you have in anything, it becomes easier. And, you know, with many things in terms of interventions that we do in psychology, a lot of it is about habituating people to discomfort. Because when you fear discomfort, that is when you have problems because you're constantly acting in a way to avoid being uncomfortable. And so, you know, to avoid being uncomfortable, we do things that don't meet our value system. And that's actually the worst thing that we can do, you know. So there are lots of expectations that people have about being a mother that aren't necessarily in line with their values. Like if they sat down and actually looked at their values, they would see that, oh, that doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of things. So I think that doing things like sitting down and having sort of a conversation with yourself or with a professional about what do you want motherhood to look like for you? You know, and so understanding that motherhood looks different for every woman. It doesn't look the same for everyone and nor should it look the same for everyone. So what's most important for you in this motherhood journey? How do you want to feel as a mother? You know, what parts of yourself do you want to keep that are special for you? Because, you know, as we've talked about that you are kind of being reborn as a woman when you become a mother, there are still parts of you that you can take with you that you feel that are key to yourself. So understanding what parts you want to bring across with you and how you're going to continue to nurture them when you become a mother. And also just getting really comfortable with the idea of not meeting expectations in terms of ones that don't fit in line with your value system, you know? What we were saying before, I think that with my third child, my cup was completely empty and I never ever 
focused on filling it up at any point because I just had this thought that I had to make everything else work and then I will be like I'll be fine. So my the way I saw everything in life was my children, husband, life, house, blah, 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 and then I was right at the bottom. So when I gave birth to my third child, I was completely empty and then I came home and felt completely empty and to start off raising a tiny little human, even though I thought I knew how to be a mother and it was going to be exactly the same, to actually think like that was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And that is when I felt lost and not in control. And if I, I guess, had this understanding or education about the importance of making sure that you are okay first, especially while you're pregnant, I think things would have been a a lot different in my postpartum recovery. Thanks so much for sharing that because I can hear your vulnerability when you were telling me about that time. And, you know, I think that in the society that we're in, as we've talked about, it's just so typical for us to get this messaging. And it's not actually just about being a mother. It's women in general. It's about being a woman in our society and we get this messaging that our role is to provide for others and that we ought to be self-sacrificing in order to meet the needs of others. And it's a a messaging that we get all throughout our sort of existence as women on this earth and when we become mothers, that gets ramped up to another level. And I think as well as that, look, I don't know what your background is, but if we have beliefs that come with us through our own family of origin that are around, you know, to be a good woman, to be a good mother, this is how you care for others, like you care for them at all expense then that's just another layer that comes with us and that can be really detrimental when we do enter into motherhood. And I think the other thing is that, you know, for you talking about having your third, it's, you know, what probably happened is that over the previous two that you had, the kinds of behaviours that mean that you are unable to give to yourself, they become sort of more ingrained over time. You know, as I said before, the more we practise anything, the more automatic things become. And so, the ability to think outside of the space of sacrificing for others becomes harder and harder because you haven't been doing that. So, you know, that's definitely one of the things that I talk about with the women I see when they come and they say, I feel lost and I don't know who I am anymore. I don't even know what I like anymore and that sort of stuff. Sometimes it's just going back to looking at what they did before and is there anything back then before they became mothers that might still be relevant or still has, you know, that they still have some interest in that we could try and reclaim now. But also like, let's just try a bunch of new things and see what it is that you like and what fills your cup. And the other thing is also that I think because as a mother, your time is so limited because you actually do have a lot to do. We've got a lot to do. That's just the truth. We live in a time where we're not well supported in terms of family or otherwise. And so a lot of it falls on us. And so we probably come from a background where to spend time on ourselves, we took time to do that. You know, like we actually, you know, we might lavish time on ourselves. And so we might have the limiting kind of belief that if we can't do it in that same way, it's not going to be enough, you know, like it's not going to be enough to not be able to spend, you know, two hours going and having a massage or whatever it is that people want to do, you know. And I think that there's a bit of a reframe that has to happen as well in terms of like this concept of small things often, which I talk a lot in terms of relationships and about doing small things often in relationships, but also small things often for ourselves. 
you know, what little things can you stack in your life on top of already existing things that you do that can help to change the way that you feel in terms of I'm giving to myself in this moment. And some of those things are literally just around having solid boundaries with our children even. One of the things that I notice is sometimes when my kids get to the point where it feels like they're being very whingy and I'm like at my snapping point, that just reminds me that there was a boundary that needed to be set a long time ago Mm. that I didn't set. And by not doing that, I wasn't honouring myself and I wasn't being true to myself and I wasn't being clear with my children in terms of setting a limit for them, you know, like setting a loving limit and a loving boundary. And it's just, it's just that thing that life is so busy that we just get so in the flow of what we're doing that we're just sort of like getting the habit of swatting things away or whatever, not really properly dealing with them. And then for me, I end up in this place where I'm just like, ah! and I just, you know, I'm snappy and exploding lady. And then when I stand back and take a breath, I go, oh, you know, I could have set this limit back then. And yes, I may have had to deal with your big emotional outpour about that, but I could do that then because I was stable. <laughs> but it takes a lot of time to yeah. learn those boundaries for yourself, to know yeah. when the trigger is yeah. coming, to know when to, you know, pop them in place before you get to that point. I think I spent a whole solid year trying to stop feeling guilty and start going, I deserve to set these boundaries to protect myself. Mm to make everyone else feel good. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes, I mean, you've touched on it by saying, you know, taking time for ourselves doesn't have to be two hours at a time. But sometimes I feel like self-care is thrown around so much nowadays and it's great that there's more, you know, awareness around it. But how how do we do self-care? How do we do self-care when we're so busy and we're so you know, like we're really struggling to find the time. Yeah. I think that you're so right about that. Self-care seems to be a bit of a a catch word that gets used a lot and certainly is for many people brings up images of things like, yeah, going and having a facial and a spa and all that. And I love doing those things when I can do them. But I think in this stage of motherhood in particular, when you have very young children, for me, I think that self-care actually is much more well, it's, it's simpler than that, but it's harder to do than that. And what I mean by that is that self-care can be making sure that you limit your social media time so that you're not spending a lot of time in comparison. It can mean setting boundaries around your sleep, so getting to bed at an earlier time so you don't stay up late scrolling or doing things that aren't really going to provide you know, back to you. So it might be making sure that you're eating nourishing food and things like that. So what it means is that it's refilling your cup, not just in a, I guess, spiritual, psychological way, but also in a physical way. So you actually have what your body needs in terms of energy. And I mean energy like in a physical way, but I mean energy in a more, you know, emotional, psychological kind of way to be able to deal with what motherhood gives you in a way that you're going to be happy with. You know, so I think a lot of the time when our tank is empty and we respond in ways to our children or with our partners that we don't like, it's because we're just burnt out. Like we haven't slept enough. We're not eating well. Our body's nourished. It's probably depleted in terms of macro and micronutrients. We're not operating in the best capacity that we could be. So I think that aspect of self-care is what isn't really talked about very much. You know, the idea that rest is okay as a mother and as a woman. You don't have to be working all the time to prove your worth as a woman or as a mother. Those are the parts of self-care that I try and get women to think about when they come and see me and in the groups that I run. But, you know, the other things is to do with connection. But we as humans are built for connection and we can't do without that. And I think that being a mother 
especially with young children, is can be a very isolating experience. You spend a lot of time by yourself with these children who, you know, are irrational. You can't have, you know, proper conversations with them. You know, like it's beautiful, the conversations that you do have, but it doesn't beat having a conversation, a meaningful conversation with another person. And so carving out time where you can have that connection, that need for connection met, is another important part, I think, of self-care. And I think that when you think of self-care in those terms, it's easier to see how you can do that every day without having to go out, spend lots of money or be in a particular location. You know, you can see it as being more a part that is integrated in your daily life. And so for me, that's kind of the reframe that I like to try and help women gain when they think about self-care. And look, if you can do the extravagant getaways and, you know, every once in a while, then that's great. And, you know, that might mean doing things like, one of the things I do now is I say twice a year, I go away with no one, like no girlfriends, no anything. I don't want to talk to anyone. <laughs> I don't want to have to meet anyone's needs. I want to watch all the Netflix, you know, and that's a really meaningful thing to me. And it's something I get to look forward to. And I block it out and plan it in advance for that year. And if you can do that, then that's great. Like if you can't afford to do that, then it might mean going and crashing at your girlfriend's house that doesn't have kids or going and staying with your parents if that's a space that feels safe and comfortable for you. So there's ways of being creative about meeting our needs for self-care. Motherhood, I think, is the weirdest balance between it's so isolating but never having a moment for yourself at the same time and you crave connection while craving to be alone all at once and it's just the weirdest feeling. Yes, I, I so relate. <laughs> Absolutely, like constantly feeling like, oh, just everyone touching me or in my space and speaking. And yeah, like I think for me personally, I never, I've always been someone who's quite an extrovert. You know, I'm very, always been a very social person. And becoming a mother has made me. I'm still like that, but when I have an opportunity, I just love nothing more than to just be in silence and with no one saying anything to me, you know, like, and that just is so far from my personality before I had children, like, that was kind of a scary space to be in, and now it's, like, just something I really treasure, so finding time to even do that, even if it's, like, 10 minutes, getting a cup of tea, locking your kids inside and going for a walk in your garden, you know, like, it's just about finding those opportunities where you can. I loved you posted on Instagram that sometimes if you can't find time for self-care on your own, you throw your kids mm. in the pram, you put your headphones mm. in and you say to them, mummy's just not going to answer any questions for the next 20 minutes. And I think that's great because it's way more realistic, but you're still getting that self-care at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, another one that I do is we play the quiet game because my kids are really competitive. <laughs> and it's, so you know, my this daughter's two and, yeah, <laughs> My two and a half year old, he's only just started to figure out, she thinks it's hilarious to make the noise. So she doesn't quite get the game, but my son really gets it and he's so serious about it. So I get a couple of minutes of silence sometimes. You know, my son is really loud. So he runs around the house naked, screaming and he's singing his rock songs and doing air guitar and it's just loud all the time. And so sometimes I'm just like, let's play the quiet game, you know, and it's like that's a way for me of just getting a few moments to reset my nervous system and hopefully his as well. So good. What's the longest you've got? Oh, God. It can't have been over a couple of minutes. <laughs> it feels like a lifetime. I play who can be the quietest the longest and then they think it's a yeah. game and then they're yeah. literally 30 yeah. seconds into it are like, 
Yeah, we know what you're doing. This doesn't oh, work fuck. anymore. <laughs> it actually, it, do, it, it used to work when they were little, but they would only have a threshold yeah. of like literally five seconds. So I was like, oh, that goes out the window as well. Oh, that sucks. I can't, I'm not looking forward to the point where they do that. My youngest one, one that does work with her is if we make it into like an animal game. So it's like sleeping bunnies or sleeping lions or something. Or the other game that they really love doing at the moment is she loves to pretend that she's Santa. So I have to go to sleep. So I get to lie down with my eyes closed and it's silent she's like tiptoeing around the house piling everything she can find all around me and she just loves it it takes forever because she runs all around the house looking for things that are going to be presents and then she wraps them in paper that she finds around the house so when they do that together I'm just like oh my god this is brilliant it's like it's quiet and I'm lying down because it's just you know when do you get that when the kids brilliant. Are the my daughter checks on me way too often yeah. I'm like mummy yeah. just let me sleep stop checking on me. <laughs> oh dear. So mum guilt is such an overwhelming, all-consuming feeling. Why do we feel like this and how can we decrease these feelings? Well, it really ties back to, I think, what you spoke about before in terms of expectations. So essentially, I think, you know, a lot of the discomfort or distress that we experience in life in general can be caused by reality not meeting what we had expected. And so when we have a perception about how we want to behave as a mother and how we want to interact with our kids or, you know, whatever it might be, and we're unable to meet that in reality, then we feel bad about that. You know, we feel guilt. And look, guilt in itself is not a bad feeling to experience because it's a driving emotion. So it can drive us to do better. We can say, oh, you know, I didn't really respond very well just then. You know, I'm going to do this in a different way. And it can also be a driver for repair. So there's constantly experiences of rupture in a relationship with our children or with anyone really. And feeling bad about that is the sort of impetus to, to drive us to say, I'm really sorry about that and all the rest of it. So that's okay. I think that the more damaging thing is around shame. And that's more to do, as I said earlier, with our interpretation that we've acted in a certain way because we're not a good enough person. I'm crappy at this. I'm not a good mum. I'm terrible and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, if you ever experience that or in hearing that, you can see how that doesn't really give you a solution. It doesn't give you a, a way to solve the problem because the problem is that you're a shitty mum, you know, you're a, you're a terrible person. So there's no way to fix that. So I think that working with shame then probably requires some professional help to work with that and looking at where these belief systems around yourself, you know, so your self-worth and all that sort of stuff, like where that's come from, how that was formed and then working to repair that, you know. And many of the women that I work with have got stories where they didn't have fabulous upbringing, so their needs were not met or they had relationships with their mothers in particular that were not healthy relationships and, you know, that they might have had experiences where in order to receive love in whatever way that may have been, that they had to meet a certain expectation. And oftentimes those expectations were unrealistic and so they spent a lot of their time as, a, as children not being able to meet the expectations of the ones who were the caregivers and therefore not receiving love or validation and things like that when they were young. And so that's a thing that they carry with them. So the idea that I'm not good enough as a person and then that sort of flows through into motherhood. And that's the way that they then interpret any kind of trigger, which is, you know, your child being upset because you did whatever or you didn't do whatever or because you've upset your partner you've disagreed about something or you've acted in a way. You know, rupture just happens in relationships. It's a normal part of being in relationships. 
we can always repair. And in fact, you know, when we make mistakes as mothers, it's a wonderful teaching opportunity for our children, being able to admit and have humility and say, oh, I did something that wasn't okay. It's a really valuable lesson for children to learn to be able to do that. By providing that, it actually will hopefully help them get to a point when they are adults where they can forgive themselves and have compassion with themselves because somebody else has provided that for them. Yeah, and I guess it's similar to working through issues in relationships in front of your kids as well. I think there's that fine line about you don't want all conflict resolution to happen behind closed doors, but you maybe don't want to let them in on absolutely everything, but they should be brought up seeing that arguments happen and then there's ways to get over those things. Absolutely. I so believe that. And I think, you know, the reason why that is not a great thing generally in terms of having big explosive kind of arguments with children around is because children are constantly looking for evidence that they are loved and that they're in connection with us. And so when they see their parents arguing, they interpret that as being about them, you know, and they get very worried about that. And, you know, I noticed that even with my daughter, when she and I had a rupture and I'm maybe still fuming and needing to calm down and I'm working through that, that she'll come up to me and like smile at me and say, I love you, mummy. <laughs> and that's her going, are we okay? Like, do you, you know, is everything all right there? And so it's important to bear in mind that and I think that the age that they say that children start to not do that so much is around about the age of eight where they can start to see that this is actually just an argument that happens between these two people. That's really interesting that you say that. My husband and I had a really intense argument. It was about a few things actually, which I think is quite healthy because it gets a lot of things off our chest and we always manage to resolve it. Well, usually nine times out of 10, except the postnatal journey was something we really couldn't get our heads around. But um, Mm. we were arguing for a few hours on and off about a lot of things. And Mia, my oldest, she's nearly eight, came in and lied in the middle of us. And we were raising our voices and I stopped halfway and I said, Mia, mummy and daddy are fighting and we are really, really angry at each other. Is this making you upset? And she she said, no. And I said, we love you very much and we actually love each other very much. And that's when my husband said, I love mummy so much, but this is why we are having a conversation so we can work it out. And she nodded and went, yeah. And then like sort of skipped off. Like it's like she almost subtly wanted us to, you know, say, oh, it's all good. You're okay. And then she could run along. She just needed to make sure that it wasn't like, oh, you know, what is actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes such sense because to them, you know, we're everything to them. Like we are absolutely everything. And so if they're everything, if their stability in the world is looking shaky, that makes them feel very, you know, unsafe. And so that completely makes sense. And how awesome, what a great job you did in being able to communicate that, you know, and that's absolutely right. Being able to say to the kids, you don't need to worry about this. We've got it under control. We're having a disagreement. This is what happens sometimes. You know, for my kids, I say, you know, sometimes you have fights with Kiki, don't you? Like, you know, Otis and Nakia. Or I'll be like, you know, sometimes you fight with your best friend, Lisa. And he's like, yeah. And then I'm like, then you guys are okay. You get it off the chest and whatever. And that's the same as us. We need to work it out. You know, for me, I had an upbringing where the adults never said sorry. They were always right. And it didn't matter how awful what they did was. And so it's been so healing for me to really change the way that I do my parenting. But healing again to see my children, even at the young age that they are of five, doing that, like copying that. You know, the other day I was trying to put Nakia to bed and I got really grumpy with my son because he kept jumping all over the bed and would go away. 
and I sort of told him to go away in a way that was not how I would like to do it, but he did leave. And then when I left, I was going to go to him and, you know, repair with him. And he ran up to me and gave me a hug and said, Mum, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I know I shouldn't have done that. And it was really profound to me because it was like we sat down together and we then talked about it all. And I said, you know, I'm sorry that I, you know, raised my voice with you and all that. But it was really beautiful that he'd had that moment where he sat and he thought, yeah, I didn't do the right thing, <laughs> you know. And he came back and it was just a lovely moment. And he does that a lot. And he's, you know, and now when I say to him, you know, I love you, even when I'm upset with you. And he goes, yeah, I know. I know you love me. Like, he's just like such a cool dude. And it's, How and it's could you like, not? You know, yeah. Exactly. And I just think, oh, you know, that's so amazing because I spent much of my childhood wondering about that, you know, not actually being clear about that. So that's really powerful for me to see my own children being certain in the fact that their parents love them no matter what. I have another question for you and it's a slightly off topic, but Sophie's like, oh, here we go. No, I'm all for it. (laughs) No, my question is being an only child, so not having any siblings, I also found this extremely hard to become a parent of multiple children because I don't understand the dynamic of siblings. So obviously we are all winging it, but I have no experience in the realm of siblinghood. So it's been very interesting. And I think that I am a person that always likes to think of how others are before I react. So that's the only thing that I go by, but whether or not I'm actually you know, doing the right job or, you know, saying the right things. It has been such a wild journey. I'm just wondering if you have anyone that else feels similar who has ever addressed or mentioned that. Mm. I certainly have had women who are becoming first-time mothers and are really worried even about becoming a mother of a child at all because of being single children and being like I've never looked after anyone else but myself so in a bit of a different twist to you because you've obviously had the experience of caring for others but I guess that whole thing about being responsible for others I think you know in terms of raising siblings in general like I had siblings and I still find that so challenging about knowing when to step in when not to step in so for me you know I'm two and a half years in now to having multiples And I still find it a challenge and I feel myself, you know, as a mother wanting to protect both of them constantly in their interactions. But it just bites me in the ass so often because you take one side or, you know, one of them's the one that's being victimised or whatever for one moment and then the next minute it's flipped and then it's like, well, now how am I going to solve this? (laughs) So it's really hard. So one of the things that I am constantly learning is to try the style of less is more in terms of my intervention with the kids. And that's for the fact that often I don't actually know what's going on. And if I get involved, then it might seem like I'm taking sides. But it's also that thing of like, these are just great people skills for them. This is skills for them in like conflict resolution and, you know, how to be fair in life and what it feels like when things aren't being fair. You know, these are all skills, you know, and lessons that they're kind of learning. So, you know, I really do try a hands-off approach as much as I can, but I'm certainly, you know, not at that level. But again, you know, this is that thing about the expectation that I would like to have about myself. And I know that I'm not meeting that, but I'm going to hold myself in compassion. And so 
I just realised a little way that I can slip that into what we were talking about before about how we can get away from this. And I think one of the things is about having compassion for ourselves as mothers. So knowing that we're not always going to be able to be the best version of ourselves, but being okay with that and nurturing ourselves, nurturing our inner child, you know, being like you're overwhelmed, you're tired, you know, you didn't act in that way the way that you would have liked to. But there's always another opportunity. There's always repair. There's always, you know what I mean? There's always coming back. So I think the compassion is really important. I feel like I sort of got off track. No, well, it just shows it all interweaves (laughs) so much. And I think it makes it so much easier to be kind on yourself if you use every mistake as a way that you can teach your children conflict resolution. Mm. And it's just like, cool, Mm. let's just use this as a learning experience. Yeah. And I feel like some of the most connected moments that I've had with my children has been in those moments where I come back and I'm like, mum did this thing and I'm not very happy about that and I wonder how you feel when that happened. And we have these conversations and sometimes that's been some really beautiful, deep connection moments where we've just sat quietly and talked about our feelings together. And, you know, in some cases it means I'm helping name those feelings for them. I mean, that's the deep work of mothering, you know, like of doing that stuff. It's not just about... You know, and it shouldn't really be at all about raising well-behaved children. That all comes in time. You know, if you can set good, solid emotional foundations in your children, I think that all of the other stuff comes from that on its own. So, you know, I sort of talked a bit about reparenting along the way. And one of the things that I often share with the, the women that I see is that sometimes when we're able to get in touch with what it is that we need in a moment where we're not doing very well in our mothering, you know, that we can really pick up or we're not really responding in line with our values here. You know, one of the things that I've done with my daughter that was really amazing was trying to put her to bed. She was being really difficult on this particular occasion. She didn't want to go. I was really flustered. I had lots of things to do. I just wanted to get out. I was thinking my time's disappearing. Got to pick up my son, blah, blah, blah. And I was getting very flustered. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to do some reparenting to myself. And I was like, okay, how am I feeling right now? You know, what's the inner child version of myself? What does she need right now? And I was like, oh, I just feel like everything is on me and I've never got enough time and nobody notices the effort that I put in and this is all just really hard. I'm really tired. Like I started having all these thoughts and I was like, okay, I'm going to address those. So I addressed addressed them all and I was like, you're really tired. I can see that. And I really had this visualisation while I was doing it of me as a child, which made it really powerful for me. And I started to address that and I was like, so I'm holding her in the dark and I'm saying, I can see how hard this is for you. You've got so many other things that you'd rather be doing. You're feeling like all of that weight is on you. You're the only one, you know, and I'm doing all of this. And then my daughter, (laughs) my daughter starts going, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing. And I'm talking about all you want to do is just sit down and have a break. You just want to relax. You just want, you know, and I'm saying she's like, yeah, yeah. And then she just falls asleep. Like her whole body just relaxed and she falls asleep. And it was such a powerful moment for me because it was like, you know, this thing of reparenting is so profound and not just for us, but because when we're in these, you know, heightened states of nervous system arousal and we're behaving in a way or like anxious, you know, fight or flight and all the rest of it, like our kids, they're co-regulating with us. They feel that energy. And sometimes we can speak to the child self of ourselves and we're actually talking to them as well. It's their nervous system. It's what they are holding in their body in that moment. And that's what happened in that moment. And it was absolutely amazing. I get like goosebumps when I think about it because, you know, she also was feeling wired. She was feeling the energy that I had, which was that I don't have time for you. I'm busy. 
um, you know, all that stuff. But she had that tiredness as well because it was coming up to her time to have a nap. You know, a lot of what I was saying out loud was really relevant to her. Obviously, like different meaning for us both. But she well, got no it. Wonder. And she it kept like, saying, "Yeah." It was like she, she was agreeing with you. She was yeah, absolutely. She's like, "You get me, sister." And she just, you know, and it was like, and I noticed this real change in her body. Like it just softened, and then she was able to go to sleep. And I'm not saying that would work every time. But in that moment, it was the real, you know, you have these moments for me as a mother, but also as a psychologist where I'm like, whoa, like that was powerful, you know. And it's like it's wonderful to have those experiences to share with women that I've worked with and go, this really works. Like this is really meaningful stuff. You know, I think that motherhood just provides us with this opportunity of doing the work that we we could have avoided for a long time in the past, you know, doing the work of healing the parts of ourselves that may have been wounded you know, through our childhood or through other experiences that we've had, it's a painful experience to go through that. It's really hard work. And so the idea of a rebirth to me, it's hard work, you know, and it means breaking and shedding and all of that sort of stuff. But it's possible to do that and to come out the better version of yourself, which means a more unified version that is happy to stand out in the wilderness, to forge your own path in motherhood so you're not comparing so you're not, you know, holding the expectations of society and of the patriarchy and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. It is possible to do that and to really find joy in the everyday, otherwise very mundane moments, you know, that exist in motherhood. Here, here. Well, if we can just alter those expectations to support each other and embrace and enlighten, then we will love expectations of becoming a mother. Oh, man, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's, that's part of, you know, it's the sisterhood, <laughs> you know, it's like let's just help each, each other rise, you know. And actually today is International Women's Day as we're recording. Happy so, International you know, even, Women's even, Day. That's right, even more meaning behind that. And, and I think that's the thing that, you know, has been missing but is certainly talked more and more about so hopefully that becomes more of a thing where women are not competing and all the rest of it, you know, and supporting each other, holding each other up, having village so that we can, help each other out when we need it and different women need help in different areas so that really works because we can't all be needing the same things <laughs> so yeah well thank you so much for coming on today like as I said earlier I just feel like a bobblehead I've agreed with everything you said and I so wish I had been able to listen to this before I started my motherhood journey but it's never too late so thank you so so much oh thank you so much thanks so much Sophie thanks Jade thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump if you enjoyed it please subscribe and give us a review if you didn't good on you you can also follow us on instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes we'll see you next week bye bye